We've been studying Book of James since September, and today, after two months, we finally come to the last chapter of the first book of the New Testament. And today's text has, quote, harshest rhetoric of the entire book. Why harshest rhetoric? It is because James was talking about danger of materialism. Here, James' previous warnings about earthly demonic wisdom in chapter 3 and enchanting worldliness in chapter 4 finally finds its acute application and the critical conclusion. Materialism or love of wealth can critically harm our life and curse us forever. Once again, let us remember James' warning about the demonic wisdom, worldliness, and the materialism, these are the unholy trinity against our soul and our relationship with God and each other. We must remember that James was not the only one who spoke about the menacing materialism. Throughout the scripture, prophets and apostles, they all preached against the materialism. And once again, our Lord Jesus, the half-brother of James, gave us the most serious and severe warning about materialism. In his sermon on Mount, Matthew chapter 6, 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Some older English translation used the original word mammon for money. Mammon is a god or idol of wealth. According to Jesus, number one idol competing against God is a money or materialism. Jesus saw it as a potential master in our life which challenged the place of God in our heart. Later in Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus encountered a sincere rich young ruler who obeyed the law, and went to and wanted to follow him, but gave up his spiritual quest because he couldn't give up the wealth. Jesus said this in Matthew 19. Truly, I'll tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I'll tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus does not accommodate our desire for materialism by moderating or lowering down his requirement for discipleship. When it comes to materialism, our Lord is a merciless, mercilessly stern, solemn. So was his half-brother James. So with that, let's read our text today. James chapter 5, verse 1 to 6. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like a fire. You have a hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves 
in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Flowers fall, grass withers, and the word of the Lord remain forever. This is a hard message for us, not just to hear, but also interpret. The first difficulty of this text is, who are the rich people that James was addressing here? At the introduction, we learned that James wrote this letter to those Jewish Christians, persecuted, kicked out of Jerusalem, and scattered around outside of Palestine. As a religious minority and refugees, they were mostly poor. So some scholars think that James was consoling his readers, these poor Jewish Christians, about those rich pagan, uh, rich pagan people who oppressed them. He mentioned them actually in earlier chapter 2, verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploding? Are, not, are they not the ones who are dragging you into the court? So according to this view, James was telling his audience, don't worry about filthy rich people because God will judge them severely. Well, while I sympathize with the grievances of oppressed, I don't think James was talking about rich people outside the church. Along with the many other uh, commentators, James, I think James was talking to Christians, not non-Christian rich people. So if you think, hey, today's sermon is not about me. Hey, nobody ever called me rich. I wish I was, but by all definition, I'm not in that category. The people who should listen to today's warnings are Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Jeff Bozo, and billionaires. Here, the rich people James was calling out are the rich people in our heart. Hereby, you rich people, James was referring to our imaginary rich self in our soul. John Steinbach, a famous you know, American uh, novelist, once noted this. Socialism never took root in America because of poor, <laughs> poor in America see themselves not as exploded proletariat, but temporarily embarrassed millionaires. You know, we are living in the land of a free home of the brave with the American dream. So we all have this embarrassed you know, millionaires in our heart. We are all hopeful, eager participants of American capitalism. So I want to make it clear. What James was warning us today is not affluence, but what he called affluenza. Have you guys heard the term affluenza? It's a spiritual influenza. You are infected with a desire or lust for wealth. James is not talking about prosperity or wealth, but our pursuit and worries about wealth. You know, Bible does not talk about how much or how little we should have. Rather, Bible talks about how we should use money. It is not about the amount of money, but attitude, our attitude toward the money that James is talking about. So question is how much money we have, but how much money has us? How much money has us? So question is which one 
has a stronger influence in your heart and life? Your faith or your finance? Which one has a stronger influence in your heart and life? To those who are comfortably savoring materialism and confidently safeguarding their life with the finance rather than with the faith, James today gives a stunning caution. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Weep and wail are classic expression of a funeral. The Greek word for misery has a meaning of a tribulation, distress, trauma, and wretchedness. James makes clear that rich or materialistic people are going to undergo a terrible ordeal. These people view their wealth as a way to avoid the pain and suffering, living lives of easy and comfort, but James declares today their wealth will not save them at the end, but surprise them with a shameful misery. So today I want to share with you three warnings of James about menaces of a materialism along with some wonders of our, of our financial stewardship. And it is my prayer that every one of us here triumphs our finance with a faith. I really pray that every one of us tame our financial worries with a wonderful trust in God. So first warning about materialism points out is a tendency and obsession to accumulate without release. So materialism is an unused, wasted wealth. Look at the verse 2. Your wealth has rotted and moth have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and they eat your flesh like a fire. You have a hoarded wealth in the last days. In James' time, there are three main indicators of a wealth. And James here used the three terms to point out the temporal, temporary nature of each. First, there was a grain. You know, you could store grain in the large bin and silos. But James said, your wealth has rotted. That means your grain has rotted. Your grain has rotted. Second, there was a clothing. In ancient world where the most poor only have a clothes on their back, it was sign of wealth to have a more than several clothes. So Apostle Paul, actually, you know, when he had a last meeting with the elders of an Ephesian church in Acts chapter 19, you know what he said? He never coveted anyone's money or clothes because clothes are precious items. By that definition, you and I, we are, we, are, we are extremely, extremely wealthy to the ancient people. And third, there was a gold and silver. James knew, of course, these metals are not subject to literal rust. But he is using irony to make a point. When God brings a judgment, even these precious metals will be doomed to corruption. So James was telling us the futility of materialism and is holding in two ways. First, whatever we hold it will become decayed and devalued and eventually disappear. It will be useless and worthless. When we hold things, we make 
things obsolete. Today, we can actually prevent a moth from the eating our clothes, but we have a different kind of moth called fashion and time. Like a moth eating clothes, fashion is up or erases our once elegant, stylish clothes. Do you have some expensive clothes that you can't wear anymore because they are out of fashion? I was going to illustrate this point with my $800 double-breasted Italian fine wool suit I received as a wedding gift 28 years ago. I think I wore the most expensive suit of my life less than 10 times. I couldn't find it, so I don't have it. Everything we own has a time expiration. Sooner or later, they become obsolete. So here is wisdom. We better use it become, before it becomes obsolete or useless. You know, before I go to the second problem of hoarding, let me ask you, are you a hoarder? Is there a hoarder in you? I confess, I am. I recently saw my hoarder in me. I used not to give any money to homeless beggars in the street until I read the story of C.S. Lewis and Walter Hooper, his last assistant. Walter Hooper was an American young grad student, grad school uh, student who went to England to get acquainted with C.S. Lewis. As they were walking the street, a beggar approached them, and C.S. Lewis gave him some coins. When Walter Hooper asked, what if he used the Money to buy drinks instead of food, C.S. Lewis replied, I was going to buy drinks with that money anyway. So since then, I've been giving $5 to homeless. I actually carry $5 in my wallet. And one day, I was waiting in the turning lane between Frankfurt and Coit and saw a young woman begging. Unlike other times, I hesitated because she looked healthy and able. While I was doubting her qualification for my $5, the signal light was changed and I lost the chance. As I was driving away, Holy Spirit whispered to me very clearly, Paul, what a strange horror you are. $5 is a nothing to you. Your retirement saving are tens of thousands times more than $5. Yet you cannot spare $5 with the benefit of that. Well, second problem about holding has to do with the timing. You know, there is a time to save and time to spend, and there's nothing wrong about the saving money. Bible actually tells us that I learn from ant, I mean, you know, to saving. And it's a good to, Bible commands us to provide, the, you know, needs for families and then others. But James tells us today, the riches are holding in the last days. Last days. What are the last days? When you take a cornerstone Bible study, you will learn full biblical meaning of the last days. Last days simply means that God revealed his final, complete, saving grace through Jesus Christ. You know, we are living in the 21st century but in the redemptive history, we are living the last lack of God's time or God's history. Why? 
God fulfilled every promise that he made to us in history except one. Only one unfulfilled promise of God is his second coming of Christ and then final judgment. So we are living in the last days. And James was rebuking horrors with a reminder that our time is running out, guys, for saving souls and standing before God's judgment. And these last days, instead of serving God, you are serving money. Billy Graham once you know, preached a sermon, and this was a, a sermon excerpt. He said this, God has given us two hands, one to receive with and the other to give with. We are not cisterns made for holding. We are channels made for sharing. If we fail to fulfill divine duty and privilege, we have missed the meaning of Christianity. Isn't that true? Christianity. Christians, we are not cisterns to hold all God's blessings. We are channels to share God's blessings. You know, classic, classic illustration of that is that are we the Sea of Galilee or are, are we the Dead Sea? You know, Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, they're located in the same river, connected the same river, Jordan. But Sea of Galilee received the water from Mount Hermon and passes down south. As a result, the Sea of Galilee is fresh and all kinds of fish live and then, you know, people, you know, people enjoy fishing and make a living out, uh, you know, the outskirts of that, around the sea of, sea of Galilee. What about that sea? It just receives, never gives out, never gives out. It becomes stagnant to the point that nothing can live. I use that sea or sea of Galilee. Now, how do we cure our holding? This is the exciting part for me. Bible tells us, change the container and location of a holding. Instead of a holding, what we need to do is a boarding. Boarding. What is a boarding? You know what boarding is? I, bo I board my children. I house them. I feed them. You know, without me, they are homeless and, uh, you know, foolless. That's a boarding, right? So we feed and house the needy. That means we invest in people with a need. That is how we beat hoarding. You know, in order to beat the hoarding, we don't have to quit the, the capitalist game and the withdraw from the world and do nothing to do with our life. No. What beat the hoarding is the spirit and grace of a giving. Gracious giving beat the hoarding. And Jesus gave a parable of a shrewd manager about how to use the money wisely in Luke chapter 16. And do you, you know, the parable is that there was a manager who was about to be fired. As soon as he realized that his master is let him go, he called all his masters, you know, that are old, old people, you know, who owes debt to the masters. And all of a sudden, he's discounting all of their debt. So that when he's fired, they will welcome him. At the end of that parable, Jesus said this, verse 9, Matthew, uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 9. I'll tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, 
you will be welcomed into eternal dwelling. You know, when we invest in the people, that's the best investment. People are transported about wealth to God and heaven. Best investment we can make is a people. Why? People are eternal. People, especially needy people, they're the best investment for us because the dividends is eternal. Have you, do you have a, some of your own stock? You have a dividends? Do you have a eternal dividends in your stock? You know, every time I see this... Uh, uh, billionaires on TV, I really, really pity them. Because while, you know, they're hoarders. You know, these are billionaires. They're hoarders. You have to recognize that they're the hoarders, you know. Yet, we made them role models. Wow! You know, hundreds of billions of dollars. Number one, number two, number whatever. But what? It's so temporary. About 50 years at the most, when they die, they stand before God, what they're going to have? How about me? Us. Those of us who serve people with the love of Christ, we have an eternal dividend. Amen? You know, last Friday, I visited the One House Church, and that was a real, uh, one of the highlights of my week. Because it was a small house church. I will not mention, you know, which house church, but the uh, Smaller house church than other house church. And then that day it got smaller because, you know, somehow regular members couldn't come. But the, the shepherds and the, the, the both shepherds, they invited their co-worker, who is single mother, whose son just had a special cancer treatment. And he called, you know, his co-worker, just come by. And he prepared this... Uh, very sumptuous Italian food. Pasta, pizza, lasagna, you name it. He got full. And they, you know, but, but she, so anyway, he insisted she come. And she came later. And, you know, we prayed for them. And then she grabbed, the, you know, and then after eating that, we gave the, she gave them more food for the other two children in the house. And she left. I must tell you, as a pastor, that's, the, that's the what I live for. That's the, that was a highlight. That's a, thank you, God, for the house, church, and shepherds like this. This is what, you know, Christians are supposed to. When we pour other people into our heart and our life, sharing few material goods, you know, extra material goods that God gave, that's how we can be the spirit of the materialism. The second warning about materialism is that it exploits the poor and makes its profit at the expense of other people's needs and rights. So materialism, second thing about warning about materialism, grows unjust wrong wealth in unethical manners. Look at the verse 4. Look, the wages you fail to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of harvesters have reached, to, reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Actual, you know, Greek translation be Lord of the host. Lord Almighty is Lord of the host. This is a military term. It's almost saying that God will, you know, God will bring a vengeance to those who, who you know, those are poor people that are exploited. I mean, you know, those who exploited the poor people. You lived on earth in the luxury and self-indulgence. You have a fattened yourself. In Greek text, you have a 
fatten your heart in the day of a slaughter. So day of judgment became a day of a slaughter. For second example, James was denouncing wealthy landowners who were cheating their laborers out of their hard-earned ages, wages, whether they were not paying them full amount promise or cheating them on the pretext that they had not fulfilled their quota or whatever. We don't know. But it was a common enough problem to be mentioned several times in the Bible. So, for instance, if you look at the Leviticus 19, verse 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. Oops. You know, back then, day laborers got, you know, they get by on their on daily you know, pay. So notice here the specific instruction, not just about paying the full amount, but paying the full amount right away without delay. Why without delay? If you delay paying wages till next morning, the poor day laborer and his family have to suffer from hunger and anxiety all night. And that God cannot tolerate. You know, most of us are not in the position of paying wages to workers. But principle still the same for then and now. We should not make any gains or manage wealth in unjust, unethical, cheating ways. And uh, this is something we should recognize. More than ever, I realize that capitalism is cruel, unfair, cheating, almost inhumane. Capitalism needs redemption. Capitalism needs a redemption. We have to be a very smart, critical, you know, transformative participant in the market capitalism in this country. For instance, you know, last week there was a G20 summit in Rome. And some economists reported that the effects of a green gas and the global warming are devastating especially countries in the tropical area, more than other places. These countries in Caribbean Ocean and Indian Ocean, they do not you know, emit a CO2. Most CO2 comes from the industrial nation in Northern Hemisphere. And they are devastated by you know, global weather change. So this economy is the industrial nation they need to help these poor tropical countries suffering from weather change with the economic and environmental aid. So far, I did not hear any resolution at the end of the summit. Capitalist materialism makes us insensitive, complacent, almost inhumane to suffering of the poor and needy. We simply say, ah, because you are not, you know, you may be, you're poor because you are lazy. You're poor because you didn't study. That is so wrong. Imagine you and I were born in North Korea or Afghanistan or even Venezuela. Do you think our heart, you will enjoy the same prosperity you have now? You know, during this week, 
I, I, I read a book relating to this, especially about the early Christian view of wealth. There is a book uh, called The Ownership, The Early Christian Teaching by Charles you know, Avila. And uh, I was so blown away how much early Christians were passionate about social economic justice. You know, today, modern Christianity is comfortably existing or coexisting with the consumer capitalism. Not so with the early Christians. They took the predicament and the plight of the poor so dearly into their heart. And they're really trying to care for it. It started with Jesus and the practice, the, you know, book of Acts in the early church. And then amazingly, 300 years later, about time when the Christianity was well on its way to becoming an official religion of Rome, churches' version of economics and economic justice remain hot as before or communitarian. So let me, I actually, you know, try to squeeze this, you know, two sermons about the economic justice that really, you know, grabbed my heart and summarize it in this way. So let's read it. Let's hear it. You know, one, first one comes from Basil the Great, the fourth century church father from Cappadocia. I'm wronging no one, you say. I'm merely holding on to what is mine. What is yours? Who gave it to you so that you could bring it into life with you? Why? You are like a man who pinches a seat at a theater at the expense of a late commerce, claiming ownership of what was for common use. That's what the riches are like having seized what belongs to all. They claim it as their own on the basis of having got there first. Whereas if everyone took for himself enough to meet his immediate needs and release the rest for those in need of it, there would be no rich and no poor. Did you not come naked out of the womb? Will you go back naked back into the earth? So where did the wealth you now enjoy come from? If you say from nowhere, you deny God, ignore the Creator, are ungrateful to the giver. But if you say from God, then explain why it was given to you. When a man strips another of his clothes, he is called a thief. Should not a man who has a power to close a naked, but does not do so, be called the same? Basil the Great is a, is a really great 4th century church father. He was a son of a very wealthy family, but he gave up all, all his inheritance to the poor. And he, according to historian, he's the first one who built a hospital. Hey, doctors, we have a lot of medical professionals, dentists, you know, nurses. He is the first one to build a hospital. What does it mean he's the first one? There was a Therapeutic center before Basil the Great for rich people. Basil the Great was the first person who actually, using a church money, did you know the hospital came out of the church? Using a church money, built a hospital, and that anybody can be treated, and during the treatment and recovery, they don't have to work. They fed them free, they don't have to pay. That's the beginning of the hospital. Aren't we proud of this Christian heritage or what? Now let's read a second sermon. This 
uh, came from John Chrysostom, a.k.a. Golden Tongue, the best preacher of the, you know, the 4th century or 5th century. Let us learn that as often as we have not given alms, we shall be punished like those who have plunders. If you don't give your alms, you are same as the robbers. That's what he's saying. For what we possess is not personal property. It belongs to all. Do you notice twice different preacher, you know, early church fathers that wealth we have belongs to all. God generously gives all things that are much more necessary than money, such as air, water, fire, sun, all such things. All these things are to be distributed equally to all. And here is a you know, punchline. Mine and thine, these chilling words, which introduced innumerable words in the world, should be eliminated from the church. Then the poor would not envy the rich, because there would be no rich. Neither would be poor be despised by the rich, for there would be no poor. All things would be in common. According to John Chrysostom, Christian must use a different personal pronoun. We, we, instead of saying I and you and mine and yours, he said we're supposed to use ours. Ours. You know, on that note, I want to assure Forest Church here that we have a good missionaries to partner with. And we pay special attention to, you know, uh, relieving people in need. So we sent the money to Bolivia, you know, missionary, Pastor Bernabe Choi, you know, the $3,000 that he needed to host a week uh, seminar for pastors for house church. You know how many times he, he thank, do you have an ex experience that when you're texting somebody and then they say thank you and I use, use, you know, you say oh, euphemously, oh, you know, it's a privilege to, you know, be part of your great mission, right? But he thanked me so many times, I ran out of those euphemisms. I, you're welcome. Uh, you know, I, how, he thanked me five times in span of three days. So for us, I'm really grateful that we could have helped them out. And I want to say this. If you work hard here, some of you work hard and you have uh, some financial difficulty, please do not hesitate to call me. We are God's family. We are de facto family. Your family in DFW that God brought you in and uh, mixed us together. We don't want you to struggle alone. We want to share your burden. We are not going to... We're, gonna, we're not going to make a payments to your Tesla. But, you know, your other basic need, yes. Please don't struggle and let us know and we'll definitely will respond. Now let's go to the final warning, which is very, very scary. Because it involves a murder or fatal. It's, you know... Materialism leads to not just uh, exploding the poor, but ultimately even kill the innocent. Look at the verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. The Greek word for innocent is righteous, actually. Who is talking about? This is talking about Jesus. Jesus. 
So materialism, you know, can lead people to slip down or even to murder, fast and furious. And James was saying materialism is a blind and broken and brutal. And materialism can lead people to crazy things. You know, recently, I uh, discovered a, a, a new uh, National Geographic you know, program called uh, To Catch a Smuggler. Have you anybody seen To Catch a Smuggler? It's really entertaining. You know, and especially since I'm from South America, I care, you know, I see those uh, so-called uh, human mule, you know, people who carry the drugs in their body. So I see their, you know, episode about them, and especially those who are coming to Spain from, you know, South America. And when they caught, they all say the same thing. I have no money, and I have to do this. And they're saying, I'm not a criminal. It's a poverty and desperation made me do a crazy things. You know, materialism sometimes, these are the poor people, but sometimes materialism deceives Demon, almost demon-possessed. Possessed, you know, some greedy people do crazy things. Do you personally know someone who did a crazy thing because of money? You know, I know two church deacons who were stealing money from the church offerings. And not in our church. That's not why we changed to, you know, online giving. You know, your money, you know our, 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 our money accounting is very solid. But, you know, this is a deacons. And uh, one of uh, my uh, former youth members, the boy that I, I mean, man that I taught Bible study and discipleship since he was a teenager, later when he was, you know, young adult, he got involved. He was a designer of an elaborate, you know, financial fraud that cost uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars of innocent you know, investors. And uh, he was my youth student. And uh, when he, before his sentence, family asked me to write a letter of a character, whatever, you know, thing. Was, once I found out the extent of his crime, I said, I cannot write the letter. I declined. I Crazy, crazy. Do you know what crazy thing materialism led someone to do in the Bible? Materialism was connected to the ultimate wicked act in the Bible. That is a betraying Jesus and murdering the Savior. You know, look at the uh, Mark chapter 14 and 12. There, we find the two people with the polar opposite view of money. There was a woman who brought her life-saving in the alabaster jar of expensive imported perfume, and she broke it and poured it all onto Jesus because she was so grateful to Jesus for his extravagant, excessive love. And Jesus told us that her wasteful anointing should be told along with his gospel as his illustration. And then there was another one, the other person, someone who valued money more than Jesus' love. And this person was none other than one of the 12 apostles. So look at the John chapter 12, verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later betrayed him, objected, 
Why wasn't this perfume sold and money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief as a keeper of a money bag. He used to help himself to what was put into it. The story about these two views on money is connected to betrayal and murder of Jesus. We don't know exactly why Judas Iscariot betrayed his rabbi. But those who knew him, they connected the betrayal of a faith and friendship to materialism. His love for money. So look at the Mark chapter 14, 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest and betrayed Jesus to them, and they were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And later Judas sold Jesus for what? 30 silver coins, price of a slave. By the way, don't you think Judas didn't know how to bargain? I think it was such a, it was a really cheap, low price. I'm sorry, excuse me. If I were you know, Judas Iscariot, I think I could definitely get more than 30 silver coins. I probably can get a 30 diamond. You know, chief priests would, you know, they pay any price to get Jesus. Okay. Anyway. Judas sold the priceless Savior at the minimal price. Minimal price. Actually, I think a Judas sale of Jesus for 30 silver coins illustrates how much materialism cheated us, ultimately. So materialism can blind us and lead us to stupid, crazy things. Now let me bring a conclusion. Once Martin Luther said this, there are three conversions a person must experience. First one, conversion of the head. You have to be intellectually convinced that Jesus is a Savior and the Lord, Son of God, and crucified and risen. And the conversion of a heart. Guess the final conversion. Luther said conversion of a pocketbook. Conversion of a pocketbook. Is your pocketbook converted? Is your finance redeemed? You know, there is a, a good book on topic of a faith and finance that I also uh, reviewed this week. And the title is a God and Money and How We Discovered True Riches at Harvard Business School. Uh, the authors are two Harvard MBA graduates. And uh, they did a real thorough case studies like a Harvard, you know, uh, management school Students, they, they really, or everything is, uh, you know, very convincing. And, and then they added biblical principles and so forth. So I highly recommend maybe our John Stockton, you know, can teach this, you know, lead this group. Because we have a financial uh, freedom seminar group named John Stockton, a.k.a. number one disciple of uh, David Ramsey. But anyway, but uh, in that book, these two authors say this. There are three kinds of people when it comes to money. Spenders, savers, and stores. Those who love to spend, those who love to just hoard, and those who are stores. 
And now, after the parable of a short story, this is what Jesus said to those who tamed the finance with the faith. Luke chapter 16, 10, Jesus said, He who is faithful in a very little things is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in very little things is unrighteous also in much. Here, the very little things is a money. You know, Jesus called the money as a very little thing. It's a big thing to us, but to God, it is a little thing. How we do with our money is a litmus test to prove whether we'll be faithful with a more important thing. And here, much, you know, refers to eternal souls. So, let me, let me, let me, this is the last word here now. Imagine we are at the final, you know, judge, before, right, we are standing right before judgment seat of God. There are two lines. One line will be people with a pile of luxurious goods, expensive cars, brand name bags, fancy clothes, and deluxe houses. They have stuff. Other line, they are people with a nothing but group of people whom they share love and whom he helped or she helped, and then they are grateful. You know, which line would you like to stand before God? Or which one do you think you are right now? A pastor named Hank Hangraff in his book Resurrection said this, Tragically, many Christians spend a precious little time thinking about their eternal home. Instead, they, wor they work themselves into oblivion, building temporal homes and highways. You know, more than working for retirement, we need to work for the eternal reunion with God. And we have a one time to live. And God already gave us the greatest rich in the world, that is Son, Jesus Christ. I mean it. You and I, child of God, is the richest people. We are richer than any billionaire or tri trillionaire, whatever name it. Elon Musk is nothing compared to what I have in Christ. Jesus Christ is the greatest most glorious, most expensive, priceless gift God gave us. And now, let us really use everything with Him and for His glory. Let's pray.